0: Hello, and welcome to The Houston Experiment, a music podcast. My name is Greg Houston. I am a composer and founder of The Houston Experiment Concert Series, which is a series of music concerts held in New York City and streamed online for all to see. This podcast is for anyone who either loves music, works in the industry, or is curious in learning about music genres they may not be familiar with. If you would like to support the show, please go to www.patreon.com slash Houston Experiment and sign up as a sponsor. If you love the show, please take a moment and rate or review the Houston Experiment on Apple Podcasts. Each rating and review will help people find the show, which will be greatly appreciated. Hello, and welcome to episode six of The Houston Experiment. For today's podcast, this will be part two of my interview with composer Kevin Scott about the struggles African Americans face in trying to become established composers. So let's not waste any more time, and let's get right into it. And I hope you all enjoy. I think a lot of administrators of orchestras are and maybe this is probably one of the good thing about the pandemic is that they look at composers with dollar signs they want to know if you can sell seats and if their audience which is the you know the traditional white-haired audience in their minds are probably going to be like yeah i don't want to sit through and listen to a gospel piece by a black composer without realizing that a lot of black composers don't write like that. And I had a similar story to you. And I remember I showed a score to an academic professor. I'm not going to name his name, um, uh, but this person knows who he is, looked at my score and was astonished. And he said, Oh my God, you write 12 tone and a total music. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I didn't know that you people write this type of music. And I was like, and when, when somebody says it to you, you giggle. And you're like, ha, 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 yeah. It's like, okay. And then it was afterwards, after I left, and I'm like, did this person actually just say this to me, to my face? Mm-hmm. Yeah, hmm
1: yeah. that's it. Yes, they do. Because they don't know any damn better. They've never been, see the problem is that this comes back, it's all STEM's education. If, and it comes to the Yule controversy, which I wanna talk about at some point here. um, The problem has been that again, it comes down to again, the people of the past. When you look at books like Grout and other historical books, again, we look at things from a European aesthetic. Now, granted, there have been books that mention Black composers uh, in the the history of Western music, but again, it's relatively, it's relegated predominantly to jazz. You will see mention of Joplin, Duke Ellington, and others, but they all come in the jazz band. If you mention William Grant Still, or Ulysses Kay, or Hale Smith, or George Walker, or Nathaniel Dett, or Coleridge Taylor, or even today, Jeffrey Mumford, or Bill Banfield, or Michael Abel's, you won't find those names in those books. Nor will you ever find those names in those books, unless it's a, unless it's an academic book uh, written and published by the University of California Press or something of that nature. Because as far as they're concerned, the general audience should not know about this. There is a whole, I think, I don't know if I can call it a conspiracy. It may be the wrong word to use, but I think many of these people were never introduced to these composers. It's interesting that I ran into a conductor on Facebook, I won't name names, who is a big exponent of modern music. And he knows American music because he studied here in America. So I asked him if he had ever heard of Ollie Wilson or George Walker. No, never heard of him. Have you ever heard of Still or anything? No, I had to send him links to these composers. I have not heard back from him about these composers. Matter I think I might write him this afternoon and ask him, what did you think of the pieces? The point is that they're not introduced because the previous generation aren't introduced, which leads to the previous generation before them. They're not taught this music because the professors that are out there are not schooled enough or savvy enough to introduce people to this music. If you do get someone like this, who's an ally and introduces this music, terrific. There are very few and far between. The whole situation with Black musicologists and Black music historians who teach music about acting of of this chapter is not there. Something that Ewell did address at his his conference paper to the Society of Music music theorists, is that we do need more African-American musicologists. There are out there. You know, there's not that many, but there, there are some that are out there. But the problem is that there aren't enough to go into the universities and teach students about the history of music and incorporate the stills and the Ks alongside the Hindemiths and the Bartoks and all of that. There's not enough of them to do that, and that's the problems. Now, the second problem, the second problem, which is most important also, is that the conductors that are out there. Now, Andre Watts said something that disturbed me many, 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 many years ago. When I was in Atlanta, having a piece of mind read with the Atlanta Symphony, along with Bill Banfield, Gary Nash, Jonathan Holland, and Jeffrey Mumford, Um. The problem is that Watts was playing on the same concert that he, he, he did the sound song second. Um, and he, they interviewed him in the Atlanta Journal Constitution. And he asked him if he did any black composers. He said, just because I'm black doesn't mean I have to do black composers. This is like a Russian pianist or conductor saying, just because I'm Russian, does that mean I have to do Shostakovich, Tchaikovsky, and Prokofiev? Well, let me put it this way. If you said that out loud in the days of the Soviet Union, your ass would be locked up in the Gulag faster than you could say "boo." Even today, even today, in Putin's even today in Putin's neo-Soviet Russia, they, you know, I, you don't be surprised if the same thing will happen. The idea is you should be proud of your identity as a, as, as a Russian. You you know, I understand where you're saying you want to, if you have the love for Bach, Beethoven you Know Mozart and all the other composers, terrific, do them. But for goodness sakes, look, we're not at if you don't feel comfortable with Tchaikovsky, fine, but if you feel comfortable with Tchaikovsky, do them. It's the same thing with a black conductor. You may not feel comfortable doing Greg Houston or Kevin Scott, but you might feel comfortable doing Quinn Mason, or you might feel comfortable doing uh, James Lee III. My point is, find the right composer that, that suits your, your dichotomy, your belief, your whole thing in music. This is not. You know, but if you're gonna sit there and say just because I'm black, I don't do black music, do I have to do black music? Please, that that just irks me. To no answer.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I I've heard the stories about that, and I'm kind of not surprised. But I think one thing that really opened my eyes to the racial problem in America, especially when it comes to composition, um, being a black composer, was when actually it was 11 years ago today um this recording is on may 8th uh, 2021 um and i it was pretty much on this day 11 years ago i went to russia with julius williams uh for a performance of a orchestra piece that i wrote it was at the moscow conservatory and when i was over there i mean i think me and Julius were probably the only two black folks in Russia in at that time. And, you know, my, my, my previous assumption was, you know, I would go over there and people would probably be looking at me funny and saying, Oh my God, a black composer. What the hell are you doing here? And it was the complete opposite. Like I like never once was the fact that I was a black composer brought up. Never once was oh my god you write a tonal music. I didn't know that you people write that. It was just let's hear your music, let's talk about it, and let's go from there. And I was really astonished. And it re- and when I came back, that's when it really hit me that I was like, oh wow, there is something. Really going on here in this country that is not really cool. And I know a lot of my jazz friends, like most 90, 80% of the time they're in Europe performing and people love them. When they come here and they come back here, you know, they're just another, they're, they're treated like if they're nothing, you know, and it's just astonishing how and and mind you, this was my experience in Europe. Maybe there might be other black composers and musicians who had a completely opposite experience, but this is just my testimony. Like, like my testimony was just like, I was actually, me and Julius, I mean, and Julius was like revered over there as a black conductor, you know? And when we came back here, we're just like, well, you got Black History Month. You're done. Now go over there and shut up. That's, that's, that's the mindset that they have here.
1: Exactly. And the whole problem is that in Russia, they treat you like a human being. I mean, Paul Robeson received that treatment. I mean, um, many, many black, I mean, you're talking about a country whose, um, greatest poet, Pushkin was of African heritage and it's amazing. Uh, it, and the thing is that gets me is America has yet to grow up out of this, this, this thing. Um, just when you think we have come so close, we've been pushed back further. Part of this has to do with the Trump administration in his four years and what has turned what what was you know some people will blame Obama for eight years, but you know, it goes back a little further. Actually, you'd have to go back to the Reagan administration to see where the seeds were sown of what happened. You gotta go back 40 years to Reagan. Um, but the point is America in many ways we have come closer, we've come we've come a long way from the 70s when we were still looked at as an anom- as anomalies, as curiosities. We're still looked at it as curiosity. But in this case now, I think we have the better, we have the upper hand in all of this. Um, now, in terms of Europe, you know, Black conductors in Europe, I mean, the only two I can think of right now who are living in Europe are William Garfield Walker and Brandon Keith Brown. Brown, if you read his um, blogs, uh, says he is the victim of racism a whole lot of the time in Germany, where he lives. Whereas Walker doesn't get this kind of thing. The same thing is with conductors like Kazim Abdullah, I should say four, Kazim Abdullah and Roderick Cox. They're both living in Germany too. And they don't get this kind of treatment uh, the way Brown does, you know, so he says. Um, And again, it's funny about Kazim Abdullah. Um, Abdullah is a superb conductor. Who, to my knowledge, has only been invited to back to this country twice, once to conduct the Westchester Philharmonic, which I saw him conduct a few years ago. And it was a superb performance, superb concert. And the other one uh, of a time was in Detroit, where he did the Classical Roots concert, and he did Jeffrey Mumford's uh, cello concerto of Fields Unfolding, um, with Christiana Lamper. Uh, Great concert. But again, and and Roderick Cox, fortunately, is getting his due slowly at the Met. He's uh, he's conducting conducting San Francisco uh, Opera this year at Barber Seville, and I think he's supposed to do the Met. It was overdue, he was supposed to have done it in 2020. I think he's going to come back and do it, Um, and so forth. You have Jonathan Hayward, who's living in England right now, and he has a new orchestra in Germany. all of these black conductors that are making it in England and Germany are making headway. And yet, if you ask them to conduct in the United States, which they've done as guest conductors, this is all well and good, but will they be given the, will they be given the key to the city, i.e. the music directorship of a major American orchestra? This is the one thing that black conductors have yet to get, is the directorship of a major, when I mean a major American orchestra, I'm talking about Top ten, top fifteen American.
0: Yeah, like the Philharmonic or the Boston Symphony, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Exactly. Yeah. They have yet to get that position. Yes, the priest got the Oregon Symphony. Uh what's his name? Got the Indianapolis at one time. Um Isaiah Jackson. Uh I mean, yeah, you got the you know, you got the re- they got the regional or the metropolitan orchestras, all major still, but still regional or metropolitan orchestras. They didn't get the creme de la creme. I mean, one of the things is that Paul Freeman wound up with the Chicago Symphony. And in many ways at the time, uh, he was considered a threat to Sir Georg Schulte and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra because Schulte didn't like competition. Schulte Schulte was a kind of an interesting bird, Um, great conductor. But he had had his, uh, shall we say, his way. Sort of. Um, interesting enough, I don't think Schulte ever conducted a black composer at Chicago, um, to my knowledge. I know Barinboim did Adolphus and he did Hannibal L'Acumba. Um, Muti is finally doing Florence Price. He's done George Walker, uh, but he did that in Philadelphia too. Um, and he's doing now. He's got Jesse Montgomery. He's going to be doing so. muti has got his hands tied, you know. I mean, which is good. I mean, the problem is that, I guess I'm trying to say that black conductors are accepted, like you said, in composers too, in Europe, probably in Asia, probably in um, Australia, if, they, if we ever get down that way, Mike. But uh, the point is they don't get accepted here. The funny, the other funny thing that I'm gonna mention too is, Canada, our neighbor to the North, How many Americans know our neighbor to the north, but how many Canadians know our composers? Answer, they know our composers better than we know theirs. Name me. I always give a litmus test of my friends. Never mind composers for the minute. Name me five Canadian actors. Do you know people can't even name three or even one?
0: You, you, You know what the funny story is when Christopher Plummer died? People thought he was American. They didn't know he was Canadian.
1: I know. I know it's so funny, isn't it? Yeah, it is
0: really ironic.
1: <laughs> it is because, like I said, not you know. As I said, I would I, I would ask people here to name me five Canadian composers, and two of them I would name are black: Oscar Peterson and R. Nathaniel Dent. But how you know? And there are a couple of others. There was one I found I forgot her name, a wild composer. I forgot her name, but she's um, Canadian, and amazing how many black composers. Canada probably has that we don't know of and and that's again something we that should be under discussion too is American you know I should ask Julius or others too about the black Canadian experience um, because many of them as far as I'm you know they were Americans who left America uh, their ancestors to escape slavery but rather than just stay in the north of america they went further north they went to canada where they were treated like human
0: beings yeah so it's like a major problem like the black composers that i know of like um i remember i talked to tom wilkins like i think he did something with the bso i don't know if it was a subscription concert or not um and i know julius did something too with the bso i don't know if that was a subscription concert or not but it It wasn't yeah, but it was it was far from like there are opportunities where they can conduct those orchestras, but like you said, the music directorship is like trying to climb Mount Everest now.
1: The day will come, I will tell you this: the day will come when a black conductor will take the helm of a major orchestra. But I will also tell you, this is not this is a, this is not lying that same Black conductor will not do many, if any, Black composers. Why? Because they want to prove that they can do the canon of the of, of Western European composers first and foremost and not try to pigeonhole themselves into doing their brethren.
0: Right. That's probably the case. That's definitely probably the case. And also this goes back to the whole financial aspect of it. And I think the problem with not only black composers, but just American composers in general, which is why you don't hear Walter Piston or even Roger Sessions music being performed, is that these administrators think in their minds that the people who go to these concerts, all they want to hear is Mozart, Brahms, and et cetera, et cetera.
1: And I'll be honest with you. Yeah, look, conductors today, when I was growing up, kid. If you want want to prove yourself as a conductor of great symphonies, you did Tchaikovsky. Today, if you want to prove yourself as a great conductor of symphonies, you do Mahler. I mean, Mahler has become now the go-to. I mean, I love Mahler. I mean, I think he's still one of the greatest composers that ever lived. And And I think, and two of his symphonies have always been an inspiration to my compositions, namely the sixth and the incomplete symphony and i and i look at the 10th as a five movement piece not as this one movement adagio i look at it as a complete piece and i have listened to every complete version available right now listen to there's 11 of them i've heard 10 of the 11 uh it's amazing and that piece still fires my imagination to no end uh, what mahler left is a, is a visionary delight but the point is the point is that the conductors want; they have to bring in an audience, so they are, they have to do a Mahler Resurrection Symphony to bring in the bacon. It's like opera. If you want to, you're doing Terence Blanchard's new opera at the Met this season. Uh, but in order for them to make that a success, they got to continue doing Aida, Bohem, Carmen, the ABC of opera every season. They have to do Aida, Bohem, and Carmen because that's the only way they're going to get seats in those you know people in those seats to and to keep the in the Met running. And also to let audience, you know, to placate those audiences to, to make them happy. Because if uh, you feed them a diet of all of these contemporary operas, they're going to wanna to walk. They're gonna retch and walk out the door. I mean, I'm only sorry they didn't do Anthony Davis's Amistad, which I think was the right opera to put in as the first Black composer to do it, the Met Over Terence. but that's my opinion. Um, I mean, I still wish uh, Nezit Zagan would do um, Harry Summers' Louis Riel, which is a great opera about the um, man who established the rebellion in Canada in the 19th century, a great uh, historic figure in in Canadian history. And yet, I'd like to see Nezet Zagan tackle that opera at the Met because that'd be the first time the Met has ever done a Canadian composer. Right.
0: But I, but, but I think the, the other problem is is the fact that a lot of these administrators, like you said, probably about 90% of them are scared of new music period. Like I, I remember I went to, um, um, I used, when I was at Berkeley, I used to go almost every week to see the Boston symphony. And this was when, um, James Levine was the music director, and he did this, like, and all he was doing was, like, in his first year, I think, he was doing Schoenberg, Webern, and Berg. And I remember sitting next to an audience member, um, and they were doing Schoenberg's five orchestral pieces. And mind you, this is about 2008, 2009. And I overheard them saying, my God, I hate new music. Now, mind you, audience listeners, Arnold Schoenberg's five orchestral pieces is, is over a hundred years old. You know, and people were, when the, when, when the orchestra was playing, people were getting up, walking out during the performance, and the people who were left in the concert hall after it was done was me, students from other schools, and academics who were clapping. And then when it came to, I they were doing. I forgot what Mahler symphony they were doing. I think it was Mahler five. That's when everyone came right back in and listened to it.
1: And here's, and here's, and here's the, and here's the, here's the, the uh, here's the, 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 role. Mahler influenced Schoenberg. That's the killer. That's the killer thing that drives me nuts. That they could, they could, get, Levine proved that the, the, you know, the whole lineage. Mahler, schoenberg is very strong but people don't hear that they don't and they don't want to hear that they the minute they see schoenberg he's the boogeyman the only time they'll come and hear schoenberg is the girl leader because it's proto Wagnerian or or Transfigured night yeah yeah, <laughs> not which they will definitely listen to but they won't come and hear this piece which is crazy um it was like an old there was a story that when Klempner introduced um, Schoenberg's orchestration of the Brahms G minor piano quartet with the Los Angeles Philharmonic in the 30s. The administrator said, I didn't know Schoenberg could really write music. <laughs> that was the joke. I mean, it, it, it was so hilarious. I mean, uh, Oscar Levant also said to uh, him, uh, he studied with Schoenberg in the 30s. And Levant was scoring, when he was um, asked to score a movie, Charlie Chan at the opera. Uh, which is a hilarious movie to watch, uh, but the but Levant writes this, false opera. Um, he went to Schoenberg and said, "How do which opera should I study?" He told him to study Fidelia. That's what Schoenberg told him to do: study Fidelia. Schoenberg didn't teach Levant or Alfred Newman uh, the twelve tone theory when he got to America. He taught them how to, he taught them Beethoven, Brahms, Bruckner, and Mahmoud. Exactly. I read, I, read,
0: I, I have his um, structure of harmony book. And he said in his preface that, you know, when he got over here, that he was astonished that his students do not know traditional harmony. And he said the first thing that he teaches them before anything else, I mean, you can read his preface is he teaches them the traditional music of Beethoven, Brahms, and Mozart, and he wanted his students to get established to that before he even thought about teaching them, you know, 12 tone. yeah.
1: Exactly. And the very few people he did teach that to Deacon Newland, Leonard Rosenman, uh, John Cage, those are the few people he taught the 12 tone theory to. He didn't teach that to Newman or Levant or, or David Raxon. David Raxon was his prized pupil. And Raxon didn't learn 12 tone from Schoenberg, he learned atonality eventually like the five pieces to work straight and the six little piano pieces and you know, know, but he didn't learn the actual technique itself. Although later on, he did use it in some of his film scores um, later on. But, you know, Raxon himself is like a tremendous force uh, of Schoenberg's pupils, great composers too. And also, by the way, one who, you know, if anything, I always said, if Gershwin had lived another 10 years, uh, the closest thing that sounds like Gershwin in the 1940s is the theme from the movie Laura. Uh, it has that Bergian, it has a, both that Bergian quality, and yet it also has that Gershwin quality melded at once. By the way, I, I'm sure you knew Gershwin met Berg in 1928. Oh, oh what a meaning that was. I, I would love to have been the fly on the wall for that.
0: Oh, that, that, that that would have been interesting interesting uh, meeting. So I wanted to close out this because, I mean, my opinion is, to, to close this out is that it really just comes down to education. and I talked with this with Dorian Wallace, who's runs the new music organizing committee, and his philosophy was just to really put more pressure on traditional institutions, which we should, to really get them in a in a comfortable position to really help address these problems. And what I mean, traditional institutions, I mean, academic, academia to really help to really put pressure on them to really address, you know, this issue, because this is where it really comes down to, you know, and he, in our conversation and what we really touched upon is that we can have sexual harassment training. We can have, um, uh, race uh, African American history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That helps, but in essence, people are going. What, what's going to create change is that people are going to have to want to make change. They're they are going to have to change themselves, and I think that education and really, like you said earlier, really. Starting to teach the history of African American music as college is really essential.
1: Well, one of the things that I got that I have to say first off, when I went to Lehman College back in the '70s, there was a Black Studies department. Probably still is, and they had a Black course on Black music. I never took the Black any Black Studies at the time there, but I would have. But if I did take the Black music course, I wonder how much of the Black in, in Black music history. They covered still, or any African American concert composers. My guess would be none. Probably
0: not. I when I went to a small community college, I took a Black Studies course and in, in music, and that still wasn't even mentioned.
1: I believe it. Did you ever talk to the professor about this matter and see what he had to say? I'm just curious. Well, this was
0: previously before I went to Berkeley, so you know, I had no, I I had no real knowledge of black composers, but if I took it now, I would have said, you know, why aren't you covering William Grant Still? Why aren't you covering Ulysses K? And so forth and so forth. So and this is what I'm saying, where education in academia at the academia level about the history of black composers is so important because you could you could easily take a black history studies class and none of these composers will be mentioned.
1: I know. And, and it, it's sad because, again, and, and this is something that goes back to, again, uh, Philip Yule. Um, as I said, he's very open about, he was very open in the beginning of his um, statement that we should look at more, um, you know, African-Americans to be musicologists and such and teach. That I agree with. What I did not like him doing, and this is the thing, in order to prove his point, that um, in order to prove his point that the um, that Western music cannot be white supremacy. His whole thing was music theory is white supremacy, and he, by doing so, he used he had to find a fall guy to prove his point. The fall guy being Heinrich Schenker. Now. I want to go back to the theory thing for one moment. You and I just spoke about Piston. Uh, right. When I went to Manus in seventy-eight, I went to Manus in 1978, one of the first things, they put me in a theory class, and um, there were some things that were approached about how theory was doing about. So the first thing I said to them was, well, Piston says, the professor said, we don't do Piston here. We do Shanker, Huh? And that's when I found out of, of, of the whole thing with Heinrich Schinker. Now, Schinker himself, for lack of a better term, um, Schinker is a, you know, for lack, for, for lack of a better term, Schinker was a noted Austrian theorist, for those who aren't familiar with him at all. Uh, Austrian theorist of the late 19th and, and, and uh 20, and early, early 20th century. He was a contemporary of Schoenberg. Um, and he believed in the great, West, the great canon of Austro-German music. As far as he was concerned, the great music that deserves his analysis, his graphs and all of that, uh, the breakdown of music uh, in three levels, the foreground, middle ground, background, uh, was that from the music of Bach through Brahms. This also included Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, Schumann, um, Mendelssohn. And basically, with the exception of two composers uh, that were outside the canon, Scarlatti and Smetana and Chopin, make that three, any music outside of those was considered anathema. This is a man who felt that German music, the great German music, was the only music worth analyzing and studying. Um, The problem is that he omitted Wagner. He felt Wagner was the beginning of the end of music and the destruction of German music, interesting enough. Uh, he did not like Bruckner, who incidentally was his teacher. He despised Mahler, Fitzner, Richard Strauss, and Arnold Schoenberg, even though Schoenberg orchestrated some of his early dances, which is a very ironic thing. Um, yet, Schinker had very, what could be called, xenophobic viewpoints. He had nothing but hatred for the French, the British, the Americans, the Japanese, uh, the Italians, all of this in the wake of the First World War, I should think. And notice, tell you, and basically also he had hatred for what he perceived or what has been interpreted as Africans going after white German women, which of course would later produce what the Nazis called the Rhineland bastards. Um, the the point is that Yule, instead of looking at the actual facts about Schenker's xenophobic viewpoint, which I think were done not out of context, but more or less in terms of what it was about World War I, he took them as pure, as pure proto Nazism, and that Schenker was a self-hating Jew and a Nazi, none of which is true. This was refuted by several people in the Journal of Schenkerian Studies, uh, two of them being his the most specific critics. One of them I actually know was a friend of mine for over uh, 40 years. And as a result of this and other people commenting, it has caused consternation among the um, the academic world. Um, people in the academic world, people have either allied with uh, Yule or they feel that those people who are against Yule uh, should be should lose their jobs. And in fact, the one person who instigated this, Timothy Jackson, who was the editor of the Shankarian Study Journal. Um, was replaced and his tenure is still on the line at the University of North Texas right now as we speak um, over this whole matter um, because he chose to denounce what he saw as Ewell's falsification of Schenker. Um, the point is that with this comes another problem. Uh, Ewell also pointed out on his blogs what he calls color race. A color race for him is making sure that there are African American musicians who should not be forgotten. By this, he did post up a number of African American composers and performers of the past who he felt were denied their due. I agree with him to that on many perspectives. What he's what I don't agree with him is he's not endorsing the living composer. He's not, I don't, as, and as a cellist and as, believe it or not, we go back to Russia, a Russianophile, he speaks fluent Russian and has lived and married a Russian woman um, and such. He has not, as a cellist, I don't see him doing what someone like Timothy Holly is doing, promoting Black composers who are alive. I don't see him doing Adolphus Hale Stork. I don't see him doing, you uh, no Banfield. I don't see him doing any of these composers. On any of his recitals as a cellist and he won't stand he, he'll only do in his theory classes hip-hop and rap he won't even go into the canon of living black composers i my answer to that is you can't one you cannot throw out the baby in the bathwater with the, the, the theory situation because this is the in many ways is the foundation of what music is about it's like what cornell cornell west was saying about how university throwing all the classics out of the library it's crazy and number two, most important, uh, you know, is he's afraid of speaking about living composers because the living are going to talk back and the dead don't talk back. And that's sad. Uh, so Yule has a problem here. And I think he needs to rethink his prerogatives about this whole matter. I understand why he said it, because the people of the past have done this sort of thing. In matter of fact, he even said that Schenker's pu- uh, pupils who came to America Uh, were in fact veiled agents for Nazism, which is far from the truth because all of them were Jews. (laughs) It's it's, it's amazing. It's it's a, you know, this is something I find you can make up in a a 1940s B movie. But um, to me, I think Yule is trying to do the right thing, but he's doing the wrong thing at the same time. And if he continues doing this thing, it's going to hurt a lot of other black musicians in the end. And then we're gonna be back where we started from and maybe worse. That's one of my problems with it. I don't want to see this happen to us, we've come so far now, we've come so close that part of it also has been the George Floyd murder, Brandon Taylor, all of this. Yes, all of this, has, all of this has become the zeitgeist of what has happened with us. But the point is, education is important. It is, but it has to be the right education to inspire, not deter. It has to be the right education to exalt. Not destroy. And the point is, if we don't get African Americans of our current generation and the generations to come interested in the music that we love and the music that they will find themselves loving and endorse and help and aid and write, and even infuse it with, and this is the thing that kills me. Our music, we may base the structure. The foundations, the architecture on European models. But we also infuse it with gospel, rap, jazz, hip hop, R&B, soul, funk. We put all of that into our music, whether in part or in whole, spirituals, important part. Whether in part or in whole, it's in that music and it's part of our heritage. And we don't deny ourselves that heritage because it's a part of our legacy. At the same time, we should not, we should. Do, we should just simply should not uh, throw out the baby with the bathroom. That's basically what how I feel. Education is important. We must persevere. And we must continue to keep our eyes on that prize and continue until the goal is reached. When we are accepted not as African-American composers, not as Black composers, but as American composers who just happen to be Black.
0: Exactly. And my vision is Sunday might not happen in our lifetime, might not happen for a couple of lifetimes is that black composers can be treated the way that I was treated in Europe, just as a person.
1: Thank you. Yes. Same you know, here.
0: that's the thing. So I wanted to close out with this. So um I remember when I attended of the composers' forums at Berkeley, the chair of the composition department at the time, um, always asked the guest composers advice for young composers and what they should do. So if you could close this out for advice for aspiring Black composers, because I know there's somebody out there listening who is just like you and me, who's just started, you know, and is trying to figure out where he or she should go, um, what's your advice for that young black composer out there and how to get started and where to go?
1: First off, I'll start with a story that Julius mentioned in our Composers of Color Collective, which, by the way, I need to invite you to uh, one of our next meetings. As a of fact, uh, I'm to I'd say come on board. I'll just let Aunt Anthony Kelly know. You can come on board to the next one. I think it's in a couple of weeks uh, from this recording time or the next one in June, but I'll, I'll, I'll get you in. Um, the first thing Julius said to us was that he met a little girl who was 12 years old after he um, either conducted or he had one of his pieces played. And this little girl said to him, I want to be just like you, I want to be a composer. And I think Julius sort of laughed at it to a certain degree. But smiled and said, "Okay, I want to see you become that composer." That composer grew up, and Julius did that composer. Her name is Nkari Okoye, and Julius lived up to his word, and he, and he helped. And he's played a couple of her pieces and recorded her Harriet Tubman songs with um, Louise Topper. So there you go. The point is, if you meet as if a young, if you are a young composer and you find someone that you gravitate towards in your books, regardless of race, first of all, I would suggest trying to listen to their music as much as you can. And then if you want to write, start writing. But you have to learn the rules. You have to learn the the logistics of what composition is all about. You have to understand what Bach the foundation of music is all about. His use of counterpoint, his use of harmony, his use of the figured bass. You have to understand that. You have to understand Mozart and how he was able to be the transparent composer that he was, how he was able to clarify voices. You have to understand the music of Verdi and Puccini, understand why And singers consider this medicine for the voice. You have to understand the music of Malk, understand the big canvas. You have to understand the music of Stravinsky, of Bartok, to understand how they were able to stretch the zones of harmony and rhythm. You have to study the music of many composers who used rhythm quite a bit, be it Edgar Varez, be it. John Adams, you have to understand that. But if you're a Black composer, and if you wonder, where are my role models? You have to seek them out. People won't seek them out for you. You have to. It's not an easy road. Today, it's a lot easier than it was when I was a kid in the 70s, and when Greg was, in when he was a kid. It's a much easier road today, but it's still hard because you're going to run into professors out there who will, in every which way, shape, and or form, try not to deter you from your your quest to be a composer, but to deter you from what is your heritage as a composer. You have to knuckle down. You have to persevere. You You might have parents like mine. My mother said, turn it into a hobby. My father said nothing, anything of the sort. You have to persevere. If you have it in you, you have it in your heart and your soul, and you're willing to sacrifice a lot, and believe me, composing on any level, composing from whether you're Black, white, Asian, Pacific Islander, regardless. If it's in your heart, you're going to sacrifice a whole lot. Some of you might feel you have to make money on the side. You're going to have to. You're not going to, you know, unless you find a true mentor who's strong enough and has enough inroads to get you in there. Be prepared for a long haul of sacrifice. You're going to have to work jobs that you never dreamed you'd have to work. You may earn a bachelor's, a master's, and a doctorate. And still not be able to attain academic positions. You may have to work as a waiter. You may have to work doing card popping or doing Uber, you know, or de- DoorDash. You may have to make ends meet delivering newspapers at the middle of the night, like I did. You may have to do a lot of things that, that will deter you from your craft. But yet you have to find time to make that craft work and make it pay off. You have to find yourself, you'll find yourself with friends and relatives who won't understand you. They'll belittle you. There's some who will even disown you as a friend. And some might disown you as a relative. But you persevere. Because in the end, you will have the last laugh because you've proven who you are as a human being and as an artist. You have to persevere in order to bring your life to music and music to life. All of these things and much more will make you grow as a human being. Sometimes you may not grow; you may still stay immature in some way, shape, and/or form. And sometimes that naivete can help you. It might help you stay sane because you don't want to. Be, you do not want to be caught up in the madness of life. But sometimes that madness of life can be the greatest inspiration for your music. And that might trigger you to be the composer to who you're going to be. Always keep your ears open to new sounds, new ideas. Never be stagnant. Never say, and if people tell you, well, why can't you write beautiful music? Why can't you write a melody? You have. It's in the piece. It's in you. The audiences may not understand you at first, be it your closest friend or your distant relative, but they will understand you in time comes because your passion will catch up with you. You've already already succeeded in writing a piece. You've succeeded in completing a piece. You've succeeded to the point where you've had people look at if you can get that far and get critiqued, to be in the positive, good person, keep writing, or I'm sorry, it's not my cup of tea, but I see promise, keep writing. And when you do, you keep growing. A young composer can be someone who starts at the age of six. They could be someone who starts to the age of 60. But you always come to it with a fresh mind, fresh head, and also a fresh heart. You'll experience a lot of things in your life. Sadness, tragedy, comedy. You might get into a fight. You might enjoy a great meal. You might wind up going and getting the worst White Castle hamburger you've ever had in your life. (laughs) But it's all part. Or what music is about. Life. Because like I said, you bring music to life because life is music. And that's my advice to a young composer. Be prepared to grow. And be prepared, just be prepared to do the right thing and be prepared to sacrifice, to get that right thing done.
0: And that I couldn't, everything that you said, I could not agree more. So you, you, you said everything, you were spot on on everything. So, Kevin, this has been such a great podcast. So, I cannot thank you enough for coming on.
1: Greg, it was a pleasure being on. And I thank you for having me. And uh, you're quite welcome. And I'm looking forward to seeing many people listen to this podcast. And hopefully, you'll invite more young composers to share their experiences on this podcast as well
0: most definitely and you know that's one of the reasons why i started this to give voice to the voiceless so that that is the goal so kevin i thank you very much and um we will connect again very soon
1: you bet greg all right thank you
0: and that concludes my interview with composer kevin scott For the next podcast, I will be having composer Dorian Wallace on as a guest, and we will be discussing the organization that he founded, which is called the New Music Organizing Caucus. Remember, if you want early access to my podcast recordings, you can become a member of my Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Houston Experiment. So until next time, I will see all of you soon. And that concludes this week's podcast. Remember, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor for the Houston Experiment, please visit www.patreon.com slash Houston Experiment and become a member. If you like the show, please leave a like or review the Houston Experiment on Apple Podcasts. Each like or review will help people find the Houston Experiment Podcast, which will greatly be appreciated.